Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 114, and my guest today is Ryan Boyko, founder and CEO at Embark. You are probably familiar with the DNA testing companies like 23andMe, Ancestry, and others. I actually tried out Ancestry and was really surprised with my results, as certain parts of my heritage were very different than I originally thought. Well, Embark is a venture-backed company that is providing a similar service except for dogs. So I was really excited that Embark offered to test out our family dog, Stella, as part of this podcast interview. What's cool about Embark is that you're not only able to determine or confirm your dog's breed, but a key part of their testing is to help discover if your canine has any underlying health conditions. Embark provides the most comprehensive DNA testing in the market, which tests for over 170 genetic health conditions. Now, before making an investment, most VCs usually ask the question of, why this team, why now? And as you'll hear from my podcast discussion with Ryan, he and his brother spent an extraordinary amount of time building what is a very defensible foundation in terms of their technology and what they're able to provide with this service. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Ryan's background, including his time with Mark Zuckerberg at Harvard, how Ryan and his brother Adam gain an interest in dog genetics and the details behind all their research, the story of how Embark was built over time and how their testing works, a walk through Stella, our family Cavapoo's test results, advice for scientists who are looking to commercialize their research and start a company, the things he didn't expect when he first started running a business, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. Embark announced a $10 million Series A round of funding back in April from a very impressive list of investors. So I have some really, really good news for you. They are hiring aggressively. So if you're interested in working at Embark, you can go to their biz page on VentureFizz to see a complete list of their openings. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash Embark for all the details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Ryan. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Ryan, we have a lot to talk about. Uh, you're building a really cool company, of which uh, I was excited because you allowed me to uh, test my dog. So we're going to talk about Stella, uh, our our family Cavapoo that surely loved and adored throughout the household, uh, about her test results, which uh, which will be fun. But before we get into the company you're building, um, now your, your background. So you went to Harvard, and you actually um, you know, were like you were working closely with Mark Zuckerberg for, you know, when he was building Facebook. So you actually saw firsthand Facebook from the early days and what he was doing with that really closely, right? Well, I was working on his homework and he was working on Facebook, but <laughs> yes, we were working in the same room. He was a little <laughs> busy. Some early, early yeah. Yeah. I think I was in that first batch of email to invitations to join Facebook. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, he, um, we were in the same study group for a CS class and it was all group homework assignments. So that whole semester while he first launched Facebook before the, he left, um, that whole semester we were working together every week. And he, so the, and you just started to see like the numbers of skyrocket in front of you. Of yeah, it was impressive traction. Uh, at the time, I don't think anyone thought exactly how big it could be. I don't think anybody anticipated that uh, former Cold War powers would be using it to mess with each other's internal politics, for example. Um, you know, but uh, it's been it, it's been amazing to view the ride with that lens. Um, I remember in 2007, I traveled in Africa 
And I saw even then there were a few businesses that had the Facebook logo on their door and things like that. And I was floored um, in such a short time where they went to. Yeah, no, it was obviously uh, amazing to, uh, to, to know him directly in that capacity. It's pretty cool. Well, let's, uh, so going back into your background. So what, um, where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? <laughs> I was the youngest of three boys in a military family. So we were pretty rough and tumble a lot, a lot of broken bones, uh, uh, but, but a lot of fun. And um, there's, as the third child, the firstborn had a whole album of his first week of life. The secondborn had a whole two pages in an album of his first week of life. I think the first photos that I know of me are one photo where my brothers uh, tied me up to a clothesline, uh, crucifix style. And my parents thought, okay, well, that's worth taking a photo of. Uh, and then one where I emptied the kitchen cabinet. But, um, but anyway, if you look at the photos that exist of me as a kid, at least half of them have either me with our family's dog or one of our neighbor's dogs who moved around. So just a succession of me with various dogs. Um, and so, yeah, I've always had that personal affinity and in school, in college, I was very interested in understanding human, uh, evolution and kind of what, you know, what makes us human and, and all of that. Um, and I was doing a lot of biology. I got a degree in computer science, but did a lot of biology. Uh, but with this kind of focus and my senior spring, I had a chance to take a seminar that was only offered once there about uh, dog cognition and evolution. A really interesting uh, seminar with, there was a professor who led it, but everyone else who was taking it was either a postdoc or professor too. And it was a really interesting discussion. And that's really what got me interested in a more academic way, more rigorous way. Um, I don't know if you know this, but dogs are the very first domesticated anything. Um, and when you think about, imagine the technology we had 15,000 years ago and that nothing has ever been domesticated at that point. And I don't know if you would choose uh, rice, corn, a chicken, or a wolf to domesticate, but it doesn't seem like the first choice would be a large-ish predator. <laughs> um, and so I think given the fact that they were, it says something very interesting about us and what makes us human and dogs, what makes them dogs. I think there is something special there that we all feel now with our own pet dogs. Um, so I was really curious about how that came about. And at the time in 2005, all of the studies of dog genetics that existed were on purebred European dogs. There were a couple purebred Asian dogs, but a very small sliver of the dogs that exist in the world. And so they had widely varying estimates of where and when they evolved. And, and therefore, you can't start to ask the question, well, why and how? And what were the people like at the time? And, and you know, what was going on? You can't even start to try to understand it until you have a better sense of, of where and when. So you have a, you know, that sense. And so that's what led to me saying, we really should sample these village dogs throughout the world who almost certainly harbor a lot more diversity. And then you can do similar studies to how we figured out where and when humans um, kind of became human. And uh, so, yeah, that was the, the start.
start of the academic interest. And so, so this is the, uh, the research you were doing while you were at Cornell? So this was research that I was doing with uh, Cornell. Um, I was actually at um, UC Davis and then Yale um, with a stint in Oliver Wyman building a, a kind of a internal startup there in between. Um, so I've done several different things uh, that have led me to where I am now. But yeah, um, so it, my brother, my older brother had graduated in 2005 with a PhD in biology and joined a genetics lab and postdoc. So I had graduated just after taking this class and he and I talked over the next year or so about this idea. And uh, he had been doing mostly human genetics at that point, but uh, we managed to convince the professor that he uh, was under at the time uh, to fund my going through Africa as uh, part of my honeymoon to collect blood from feral dogs. So it was quite the experience. Part of your honeymoon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, she was also a field biologist, so, but it was fun and definitely a, a unique experience. And it gave us, we, we could travel for over two months in Africa uh, with uh, graduate student salaries that way. <laughs> So what were you doing then? Like, like, you know, so you know, led the field effort to genetically sample village dogs around the world for the Cornell Village Dog Diversity Project. So what were you actually doing? Um, so, you know, there was a lot of planning that went into it. So we kind of figured out where based on colonial history and ecology and, and things like that, what the different regions that we'd expect might look different. Uh, genetically would be because uh, you know where you think the dogs would have been isolated, um, that kind of thing. And um, you know, then you have a list of, of places within each of those regions, and uh, start getting on email and on the phone trying to get local collaborators there interested. You know, calling up professors at um, of biology and, and things like that, um, and you find some interested local collaborators. Uh, get all the paperwork. Um, I mean, that's quite the adventure in and of itself. Um, and uh, yeah, then a lot of logistical planning. But then once you're on the ground, it's a, it's a unique kind of experience. If you're uh, most field biology, you go to one place, and you stay there for a long time, and you get to kind of know the area and how to work there. And here it was, you know, a couple weeks in each place, you know, you hit the ground running, you just have to be very flexible even with all the planning. You never know what challenge is going to come each day. Um, but yeah, you know, we would go out to remote places. It's mostly in these remote villages. You know, some of them would drive around in, on motorcycles because the roads couldn't take cars. Um, you know, some of them, you know, you're in a car. And, and, uh, but either way, you, you go around, basically get an introduction to the leader of the community, uh, kind of get their blessing uh, after explaining it, usually through one or two interpreters, and um, and then go house to house largely. Um, and, you know, the people didn't, they don't keep the dog in the same way they do in America. Um, so, you know, they'd recognize that this dog is mine in a, in a sense, in the, um, but they don't, you know, feed the dog regularly. They might 
sentence graphs, but you know they don't limit the dog's movement in the same kind of way. You know, it's it's more it's the dog that lives at my house more than it is you know in my yard more than it is um, you know this dog is is mine and the exact in the same way that we would take care of them in America. Um, you know, so the dogs would go out and scavenge during the day, that kind of thing. Um, and I mean, different places had, had different things, but basically most of these dogs had never been on a leash before. So you know, the challenge was to get somebody who the dog trusted to some extent to be able to essentially use these lasso uh, leashes mm-hmm. to get it around their neck. And then I would have to grab the leash before the dog realized it was around the neck because, um, you know, a dog that's never been on a leash before freaks out. So if I hadn't grabbed it by the time the dog realized and the dog starts jumping around and the person gets scared and drops the leash and the dog runs away with the leash. Um, but yeah, so then I'd, I'd, I'd grab the leash, the dog would freak out, it would jump all around, people would be freaked out, think I'm like a alligator wrestler or something. But the, the thing is, is a dog that's never been on a leash before, never in over a couple thousand cases, not a single one of those dogs realized that if they want to get off the leash, the thing to do is to go after the person holding the other end of the leash. They just went out. They went after the leash that was touching them. Got it. So it, it looked ferocious. The dog, you know, trying to bite at its own, at the, the leash that's right next to it. Um, and it looks very scary, but you just stay out of the way until the dog's a little bit tired. Get somebody to stand in front of the dog and get their attention. And then you, you can kind of grab hold the dog from the back of the head so they can't open their jaw, put a muzzle on, and then actually they, they tend to just lay down once the once the muzzle on. And then we would just take a little bit of blood from the the vein, measure the dog, take the photograph and let it on its way. So and you did this for like a an extended period of time, right? It was it was years. Yeah. So I always had a day job of sorts, whether it was as a grad student or an actual job. Um, but managed to find ways to spend one to two months every year going to new parts of the world to, to do more sampling, even while I was doing other things. This, this is something we're going to talk about more, but what I'm hearing and what I expected to hear in this conversation was when the investors are thinking about you know, making an investment into your company, there's always you know, the market size, the, uh, the, the product itself, and then why is this entrepreneur uniquely qualified to solve this problem right now? So like the foundation of what you're building of this, you know, years and years of research. I mean, the, the investors must've just been like, wow, this is the, t- the, this is going to be the winning team for this category. Yeah. I think we, we checked that box pretty well with investors. So that was the strength we had. So at what point did you start to think this is something that we can actually, you know, commercialize and build into what is now Embark? Yeah, it was a gradual uh, progression where at the beginning, it, it really was a great research project where we were just very academically interested. Um, so my brother, after that first summer, uh, it had been very successful. We got a pretty high impact publication out of it and, and right up kind of across a bunch of popular press. And um, but they, he was able to attract more funding for the project and raise its profile. And so he shifted his own efforts from being mostly human genetics, mostly dog genetics, um, started building up other collaborations too, doing other things. And he was hired and 
2011 at Cornell as a professor of dog genetics at their vet college. So um, actually 2011 was the first time we really talked about commercializing it, but it was, you know, very early days still. Um, we took 23andMe tests uh, in 2011 as well, each of us to, you know, it was definitely an interesting time. And, um, and yeah, the, the idea seemed in some ways obvious, but, um, but it really was a progression. So when he became a professor at Cornell, he, we continued doing the filling talk project. We also started doing a lot more genetic health research, which is obviously a really huge component of unlocking the potential for this. <laughs> so, so as he, um, he wound up publishing the largest uh, study before Embark came along, you know, it included the most number of dogs, he made several discoveries relating to health and traits in that, and then, you know, several other publications, and really was a leader not only in ancestry of dogs, but becoming a leader in genetic health of dogs, too. And so I think there was that. Um, and then just kind of where I was in, in my career and looking at these op the things I had in front of me and I knew I love um, this project and, and kind of the dog genetics in general. I think that I love scaling teams um, after my experience at Oliver Wyman. And, uh, and then I knew uh, that I wanted to do something in outside of academia, but still related to science, something that, you know, could actually make a difference in people's lives. So I, I got a degree in public health um, with what I did right before starting Embark. And what that really taught me more than anything else was that the, a lot of the limitations of how much good we're doing in the world is less about fundamental knowledge and more about act, making it actionable and providing pathways for people to use that information. And I guess that translation uh, is so important. And um, so the, the idea that I could create a company that has a tighter link between the end users and the scientists doing the research than might maybe has ever existed um, was really exciting. It's one of the advantages of working with dogs is that the regulatory burden and it's all of the boxes you have to check um, are just less than in people. So even in a company like 23andMe, you still can't get as tight of linkage really between the end user and the, the people making discoveries and, and driving that research. Um, I mean, I think they do a, a good job in many ways. and they, they clearly want to be doing that, but I think we have some advantages just because, uh, because we're working with dogs there. Right. And then, so what was the point where you actually were like, okay, we're building a company now. Was this back in 2015? Yeah. So it was in May of 2015 that we, um, we decided that it seemed like the time was right. Um, we had done some kind of background research into it. I started working, so I was finishing up at the Yale School of Public Health then and started working with uh, their entrepreneurial off, uh, I think YEI, they call it, uh, Initiative Institute. Uh, and, uh, and then we also got in touch with Cornell, where Adam was a professor. Um, 
uh, you know, and then I started kind of building out a network of advisors of people that I knew in the past and, and potential investors and, and that kind of thing, building out some business plans and, and you know, really um, getting increasing confidence that this is what I, we wanted to do um, with my full-time effort. Uh, you know, I think it's the idea of doing justice genetic testing is very exciting and interesting to me. But when we were thinking about what kind of company you want to build, there's a lot of people in academia, in the research community, who are excited about making discoveries. And then basically once they make the discovery, they want to be moving on to making another discovery. And so their idea of commercialization, which is very appropriate for them, is you know make something that's useful and then find a company that wants to buy it from me, basically. Um, and kind of do the bare minimum of building my own company or my own thing that I need to do to be able to sell it to somebody else. Um, but that's, you know, I, the consumer challenges and the translational challenges are the most interesting part to me. That's not the company we wanted to build. And we looked at, well, what, so selling these tests and giving these insights is great. What can we, you know, what does that enable us to do past? that where what does that make us have a comparative advantage after that um and, and you know so it, it's essentially the question of did we build a really great product that would be great to sell to an established company as part of their portfolio or are we building a really great company that when we succeed at this you know we have a, a real reason for existing and moving into a bunch of other areas ourselves and so we we did uh, a bunch of legwork to convince ourselves first and then others that, that we were building a company, not just a product. And um, yeah, by the end of July, we incorporated, hired our first employee in August, and, uh, and then it took until the end of the following May to start to start selling it. Uh, you know, there's a good bit of development that had to go into it. Yeah, so how'd you get started as far as the development of the platform, even the de designing of the kits that were sent to consumers? Like, how did you build out that foundation initially? Yeah, um, we, it's a good question. There's, there's a lot to unpack there, and I'm trying to hit the highlights. Um, you know, I think the, um, you know, so first what we did is we, we recognized that the, challenge of scalably being able to say actually what breeds are in the dog is uh, kind of the, both the core of the initial value proposition to a lot of users and also the hardest piece uh, product-wise. Um, I mean, we're, we're, we still are doing our idea on it years later and, um, and improving it. And it's, uh, it, it's really a challenge that had never been solved well before. And it's a little bit different than the challenge that human companies have for two main reasons. One of the dogs actually come and breathe. So humans do have different populations, but those populations are never perfectly distinguished. Um, you know, you, you have, um, people always travel, even in the ancient past. And when they've traveled, they've always managed to have children with people in other populations, right? So the, the and, and kind of the, the borders of the populations are often a lot less specific too. Um, you know, are you from Wales, Scotland, Western England, 
you know, those aren't, it's not like there's a perfect divide. Well, if you have breeds, there actually is a perfect divide. It is, here's the eight dogs that founded this breed. And here's a book that contains all of their descendants. And if your dog is in that book and they breed with another dog in that book, then the dog is in the breed. And if they don't, then it's not in that breed. <laughs> like, so it's a little bit different that way. And so that makes it easier. But then the other, the corollary of that though, is that, that means that these purebred dogs tend to be somewhat inbred. And that actually in some ways makes it harder. You have to do, do different analytics. So the, the first thing that we did was we um, figured out that that was the biggest challenge. It was going to take the longest time to get an MVP. Um, and we already came out. So we did it a little bit differently in that we just believed in many ways that people would buy the MVP. Um, and it helped that people were already buying dog DNA tests um, from competitors that were doing it much less rigorously. Um, but there was a real question of will they pay more for one that's actually more accurate uh, and contains more things. Um, so that's a real hard question to ask. Pricing questions are, don't lend themselves very well to, to easy consumer research. Um, but uh, but yeah, so so we hired a, a, a developer, a, a biologist who, who developed these kinds of things. He started working with Adam building that, and I started focusing on the rest of the company. So at first raising some money, um, and then kind of hiring out some other people um, to actually build things. Um, the very first thing I did after Adam and I said, we will definitely, we definitely want to start this company. Because I got in my car and I drove my former boss's place in Boston. I was in New Haven at the time. I bought some wine on the way and I called him and I said, hey, I'm going to be in Boston. You know, do you want to uh, hang out? And uh, they said, sure. And it was the summer, a beautiful day. So, uh, he and his husband I, uh, and, and I went to their roof deck and, uh, and then I asked them a few questions about themselves and I was like, oh, I got this great idea. And it was like three hours of conversation and I like tell them how amazing it's going to be and, and get their, their interest and, um, and get Matt's interest. And, um, and so he wasn't ready to leave his high paying um, job at the consulting firm yet. But I got him to agree to help build the website for some shares at the beginning and be very interested in maybe joining full time. <laughs> and it took a few more months, but I convinced him to come on as CTO. So I think that's one of my general pieces of advice is at the very beginning, if you can identify two or three people in your path who you think, you know what, like these are difference makers. These are, this is the person who will allow me to build this. Because, um, I mean, frankly, at the point where you have an idea and a little bit of capital, you're not a very attractive employer to almost anyone. But if they know you and love your work in the past, you've worked together and believe in you beyond what is rational, then, uh, you know, that you can maybe land somebody who you'd never be able to land otherwise. And so, you know, I, I think you, you can't spend too much effort trying to get the, you know, the two or three people in your path who are, you know, you feel like would, would provide the most benefit for the company uh, and fill in things that you're missing. Um, and so that's, that's exactly what I did and it really paid off. So that's one general piece of advice. Um, but yeah, so a few months after we hired the first person who was really just building out the core of the product, the internals of the product, 
we brought on Matt as CTO. He also helped a lot with product, and we brought a few, you know, a few other people on designers and things. Um, the name of the company came from me. Uh, I actually had asked uh, some relatives and friends if they had ideas. We did a little bit of brainstorming over email, and I had already thought of Embark, but I wasn't in love with it yet. Um, but it was much better than empirically, a lot better than the other ideas that were coming. <laughs> I thought it was a brilliant name. I was going to ask you, like, how did you come up with the name? Because it's, it's perfect. Yeah, it was, it was just brainstorming. And, and we fell more and more in love with it. I mean, I liked it at the beginning. It was the best one I came up with. But I was like, maybe there's an even better one I haven't thought of. But nobody did. The, the logo, so we did um, early on, uh, even before the CTO joined full-time, we brought a company called Meta Design. We use their San Francisco office, um, but uh, just because we had a connection there. But I think they have they do have other offices. But uh, so they designed our like fonts and colors and the logo. And actually, I think you know of all the things that I paid for as CEO of Embark, that logo I think is I feel very good about the money we paid for it. It was felt like a lot of money at the time it was, uh, but I think they did a, a phenomenal job on that um yeah so you know we designed the website to sell things we started designing the reports that we wanted to send out um we had so we had two designers on full-time for about six months then then they decided they wanted to go to another opportunity after we had launched and we actually didn't hire another designer for about two years so we we kind of front loaded getting the design um, done. Then, I mean, once you have the assets, if they're good, you can rest on them for a little while. Now we're in the phase of getting even better. But um, yeah, I mean, that's that's really what we did. We just started talking to people and trying to sell, and um, you get feedback. <laughs> it was a slow summer that first summer. So we launched on the Today Show, which we got lucky by um, them getting interested in it. Um, did you have an external PR firm that was pitching the Today Show? Like, how did that come about? It was through a friend of an employee who has done PR for musicians in Austin for a long time. And we brought her on to the team for a little while. Um, and then she, you know, they said, yeah, they, they loved the idea right from the beginning. Um, and did a good job. So, so we had one of those launches where you sell a ton the first two days, and then basically everybody's forgotten about it. Um, and you haven't built a good your your funnel sucks, and your um, actual paid marketing is essentially non-existent. And um, so you know you go from the highs of oh my god, we'll never be able to keep up with these orders to the lows of when it, when the hell is somebody going to order one of these pretty quickly roller coaster and uh yeah that summer felt painful for about three or four months while we were working out a lot of things um and figuring stuff out but then you know after so we launched end of may by late september into october you know we started to really see the you know most days were better than the day before and, you know it's kind of a, a general increase but um that's, you know, kept up and we've, uh, you know, even last year we had more than triple 2017 and, 
we're still going gung-ho uh, year on year growth. So, so yeah, once you figure stuff out, uh, in many ways it feels good. Um, but the, I think the, the hardest growth is at the very beginning, getting somebody to, to care. And then, the, you know, at some point it's going to get hard again when you've tapped out the easiest to, to buy people. But um, hopefully we can always stay ahead of that learning curve for at least for a while. Well, you recently announced uh, a $10 million round of funding. So um, obviously the business has continued to grow and progress to the point where you know, new investors coming in to lead that round. But you also had some really uh, you know, notable uh, early investors and believers in the company, one of which is you know, founder and CEO of 23andMe, which you know, is you know, the blue chip standard in, that, in their category of something similar, but based on humans. Yep, and, and Anne's a great uh, advisor. So I talked to her several times a year and um, she's very helpful. So nothing but, but good things to say about her. And of course, 23andMe has definitely helped uh, just the category generally. Um, I think it's, I've seen it a little less this year, but the last couple of years, uh, and between Ancestry and 23andMe, it seemed like you couldn't turn on a TV and not see an ad. And I was just like, every time I saw one, I was like, yes. wanted to email and say thanks. <laughs> thanks for your uh, ad budget because this is totally going to go to the next level of the family the, the family pet the dog and that's and that's how i felt too because i i did ancestry it was really interesting to found you know find the ancestry tree and um but what i was really interested in learning about maybe this is a good segue of our dog stella who, who did uh, the embark dna test was the learning more about you know, the potential diseases that Stella might be accessible to, um, you know, because we knew, we went to a breeder that uh, Stella is a Cavapoo, King Charles Cavalier, Poodle Mix. And, you know, it's good to get confirmation that your results told us, yes, Stella is a 50-50. Um, so that made us feel good that, you know, we got the right breeder telling us the right information. But I was also really, really curious to see what, you know, what we should be thinking ahead of, you know, potential diseases might you know, be in harm's way at some point. So how did you figure that out? Like the, 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 there's so much to this report, right? And um, you know, all we had to do was swab Stella's, the inside of her mouth, and then send it your way. And a couple of weeks later, we got this beautifully designed dashboard on a website of all this critical information. Yeah, um, I mean, so it's been a, a, one, how to present the information has definitely been a, a process and, Part of that is just a intense customer focus. And I think a lot of companies say that what it means to us though is from day one, um, both Adam and myself, the two founders have read every single review that people have written about us um, in essentially real time. Uh, most of the reviews come in now. We, we've been asking Ask Nicely NPS scores for a while. And so most of them aren't even public, but they all get sent into a Slack channel. Um, and we encourage our employees to read a lot of them too. And um, and we so we see and fix problems very quickly. But at the beginning, actually, our CTO was uh, spent the first three months, I would say, after we launched the project, uh, launched the product, um, reading all these reviews that were just naturally coming in. And uh, finding when they said, uh, reaching out to the person, 
like and he'd get on the phone or email with them and be like, okay, let's define exactly what it is and fixing things. And I mean, some some things are matters of taste where you can't do that. But at the beginning, I would, you know, most products I would venture to guess that most of the feedback that you hear from the very early customers about most of the most products uh, are going to be things that a lot of people would feel. <laughs> and um, and so there was that intensive process. And, um, you know, since then, we've still kept on with it and been very responsive. And I still read these reviews uh, and we still uh, work closely with our customer service team and, and read many of those exchanges too. Um, I used to answer a bunch of customer service emails. I, don't have to do that anymore, thankfully. Uh, I only answer a few now. Um, but I still pay attention a lot. Um, so I think that's one piece is just knowing how what you're presenting is being absorbed. And so if you know what your goal is, and if you know um, what's happening, then it's not that hard to, to push ever better towards there, I don't think. Um, and you know now we use more sophisticated tools where we're recording user sessions and things like that, so we can actually see at a more granular level even the things that people don't email us about because they're only moderately annoying. You know, you can start to see where people get lost in the flow or or whatever. And so we have people who, who work with that. Um, you know, but always doing the product going in. You know, we're now in the process of doing a, a health refresh where we actually want to take all the feedback we've gotten that we haven't been able to do small things to improve and actually turn it into something that it's much more obviously actionable. Like what, what is it that we can tell you? Some of which is about specific mutations, but some of it might be more holistic about your dog, you know, about given the breeds that are in the dog, given the age of the dog and given, um, you know, other things like that um, combined with specific genes. Um, so that's kind of one answer. Uh, I'm also happy, I think there was a little bit of this, how does this compare to humans in there? Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, on the, that part of the question. So to ground you, there's been more than a thousand times as many human genomes sequenced as dog genomes. Mm. And our database of dog um, what we call dense genotype data, um, not to get too technical, but essentially it's not a whole sequence, but it's enough letters that you can fill in most of the sequence and make discoveries um, versus just asking about a couple places in the genome, which doesn't let you do discovery. Mm -hmm. All right, so our, our database already is more than 10 times bigger than any other dog genetic uh, database. Wow. That could be used for research, and um, but it's you know twenty times smaller maybe than several human databases. Mm -hmm. So this is to say, a lot of the stuff that we know about human genetics is um, what you you call risk scores. So it's not that there's one gene, one mutation that leads to this disease. So there are a few things. Apex disease, sickle cell anemia, those kinds of things where if you have this one mutation and you have two copies of it, you will have the disease. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and the simplicity is just caused by that. They tend to be in smaller closed populations um, or in places, and so that's Paysac. With uh, sickle cell, it's actually, it isn't a particular population, but it's because it, uh, having one copy is protective against malaria. So they're either positively selected for, or they're just going to be small populations. Um, so that's why there's not that many of those kinds of diseases that are in human test test for. But what they can do is test these really complicated diseases and say, do you have a 5% risk of developing stomach ulcers or do you have a 2% risk, right? Dogs are the flip side. Dogs have a whole bunch of small populations. Every breed is essentially a small breeding population with more inbreeding than you see in any human population. So they have a bunch of these single mutations that are known to lead directly to disease in the same way that a taste act or sickle cell is. But they don't have a big database of a whole bunch of dogs that have been well studied to develop these. Do they have twice as high a risk of developing hip dysplasia or heart disease or, you know, some more, much more complicated diseases, obesity, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. So that's what we want to build. So we're actually starting from a place where there's a bunch of specific mutations that you can say a lot about just because of the way dogs have been bred. But there's not these other like bigger things that affect tons of dogs um, because that database has never existed. And so that's what we want to build now ourselves and lead the research to. Um, and is that it's like the consumer? So there's the research tab that has all these questions, Q&A type things. So that's driving that piece of the equation? Exactly. And the, and the more that people use Embark, the better the data is going to be for the consumer, just like you know Ancestry or 23andMe. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, we'll obviously be able to test more health things and, and also you know you can find your more dogs relatives and, and things like that too. And that's the fun part. So my wife was definitely interested in the relative, like where is you know the other puppies from, you know, from the same litter, like where, where are those dogs now? Like you know, so I think that'll be fascinating. And if there's one that happens to be still close by where you live, you could have Stella meet you know her next of kin. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was. It, we were obviously very happy as a family to get you know a glowing report that you know Stella did not test positive for any of the genetic diseases that Embark screened for. So it was like peace of mind that she's a healthy dog, and there's nothing that we need to be thinking ahead of. Yeah, it was great. Um, about uh, we have uh, about a third of our customers, um, depending on how how you define something, but yeah, about a third find some actionable health thing uh, about their dog. Uh, but it's, it's, so it's actually funny. We sometimes get reviews of people who, who don't, who are like, ah, disappointed. And I'm like, no, you know, your dog's healthy. Don't be disappointed. <laughs> disappointed that yeah. <laughs> Healthy for what we can test for. So we also sometimes get people who, you know, my dog uh, um, developed deafness uh, or, you know, was hit by a car or something even. But then you're like, well, you can't test for you still need to go to a vet. You still need, like, there, there are things that are not genetic. Um, and then there are things that are genetic that we, we don't know yet. Um, but that's what we're working on. That's awesome. No, it's, a, it's a great product. And the whole user interface was just very elegant. So when you talked about the design work you were doing early on, 
it obviously showed because it's it's a very well designed, easy to follow pr product as a consumer. Yeah, I mean, one piece of advice to an entrepreneur is if you're, you know, we knew that we were going to have to price higher than what was already on the market because our cost of goods is much higher. Um, but we're testing a lot more of the genome. That's what really drives the cost. Um, and so we knew that that meant that every part of the experience had to be better because all of this work that we put in under the hood that, you know, I mean, we've spent a lot more in R&D than competitors and we spend a lot more in cost of goods than competitors to, to give the most accurate and best results. But that's all kind of visible to people. What's visible to people is how well is your logistics on? Is the website easy to use? Is the swab, um, you know, is it easy to swab my dog? Mm -hmm. And if, you know, is your customer service responsive and, and good? Um, that's what you're being judged on. And so, um, you know, so we knew, given that we had to have the highest priced product, we knew that we had to in, be willing to invest in, in all of that. Um, and I think in general, it's always great to make the best product experience you have. But I do think the trade-offs as you think about, do I want to spend more on certain things? They're a little bit different depending on whether you're coming in trying to be a cheaper alternative to what people are using or you're coming in as a premium product. And, um, you know, so we, we knew we had to go all in on providing the best experience because we're at a higher price point. And I also thought the communication was uh, very helpful. So you send the test back, you get an email saying, hey, the results are in. And then there was like a workflow of where the testing was through each stage. So you weren't just kind of like waiting and just wondering when's this going to show up. Like there was like this constant communication of this is still happening. We're working on it, getting there. It's now entering this phase of testing to the point where obviously you get the results. Yep. Um, I think that's also very important if you have a product that has some kind of lag. that <laughs> you got to keep people engaged. Um, I mean, we hit the spot of um, a kind of premium price, a um, something you care about a lot, at least you're, you, you care about your dog a lot, whether or not you care about the genetics a lot, um, and, um, and a, you know, a lengthy-ish time. I mean, now over half of our customers are getting results in under three weeks, but, um, you know, three, still three to four weeks feels like a long time to wait, in, especially given uh, the kinds of expectations that Amazon and others have created. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, we, we really, uh, we get a lot out of, keeping people up to date and, and feeling, uh, feeling like we haven't forgotten about them. So now looking back, like what advice would you give to other uh, researchers that are maybe potentially looking to commercialize and start their own company? Yeah, so I think the first couple of questions you have to ask yourself, and you have to be willing to be somewhat brutally self-reflective and also reflective about your work about it is, um, do I actually have an innovation that is commercializable? Um, and you know, that, that can take a few different forms, but, um, and, and so one could be that it's a consumer product that a lot of people would buy. That's usually rare for something coming out of a lab, but it happens and that's what we feel. Um, you know, or there are some clear examples, you know, this is a pharmaceutically relevant compound that I have a patent to. Okay, that's commercializable. Um, 
you know, but there's a bunch of other things. I, I uh, have a CEO group I, I meet with, one of whom uh, her PhD research was on um, propulsion systems for satellite delivery. And so she built a system that could deliver a satellite cheaper and much more precisely to an exact location than anybody else. And, you know, that was right. There's lots of things that are commercializable, but then there's also lots of discoveries that aren't. Either because the people who benefit from them don't have the money to pay for them, which, you know, you may still want to get the product out in the world, but it may not be as good of a kind of a venture. Um, or, or because there's just not enough demand. Most things some people would want to buy, you can find a few people who want to buy it, but you either need a few people who are paying millions of dollars for something, or you need a bunch of people who ultimately want to buy something for it to, you know, to work as a venture. And um, so you have to be brutally honest. And I think that's, you know, you want to pull in advisors who will be honest with you about it. And then the second thing is, and what do you want? I mean, you're not, uh, like, this goes back to my before, like, you can build a product. So, like, that compound that can be uh, a pharmaceutical, do you really want to build a company around it? Which means that you're going to be logging in, you're going to be learning state laws about employment, you're going to be learning reporting laws, you're going to be, you know, talking to lawyers on the phone about all sorts of other things. You know, I said I have a science background, but I'm going to focus solely on, mostly solely on learning everything about building a consumer company for three years because we don't, we won't have a database to do interest in science for a little, you know, for a couple of years at least, right? So the thing that we will make us succeed is by being a great consumer company. Mm -hmm. So if you're a, uh, you know, if that kind of thing appeals to you, um, then that's great. Uh, but it, if you're not excited about all the nitty gritty pieces, then maybe the best thing to do is to build a product and sell it to somebody who already has those other things in place. Yeah. Um, you just kind of, I think, have to be brutally honest with yourself because it's not easy. It's never easy to actually build it as a company. And, um, I, in many ways, I feel like my path has been easier than some stories I hear, but it still wasn't easy. <laughs> what has been the biggest challenge? Like you mentioned, wow, I had to learn how to, like the business side, like how to be a CEO and run a consumer business. Um, and you took the time and it sounds like it was very well thought out of how, how to overcome that challenge. But what, what were kind of, kind of the things that you didn't expect that uh, looking back now, it's like, oh, all right, next time around, I wouldn't do that again. Um, so one is, um, and I, and I should have expected it. And I, so every book you read about starting a company that is general or like for a startup CEO says how important hiring the right people is and hire fast, hire slow, hire fast and all of that. And so I certainly came across it a bunch of times and I certainly thought I believed I was internalizing it, but it, it you know, you, um, I've never met a first-time CEO, and usually not even subsequent CEOs, who don't feel like they aired at least a little too much. On, you know, in the moment, you're like, I need somebody to do this. If I don't have somebody to do this, we're not going to be able to grow our sales next month, and we might not be able to raise money in four months. 
and we might go bankrupt and not be a company. Shoot, do I want to not be a company or do I want to hire somebody who I'm not totally excited about? And if you frame it that way in your head, you know, you, you make some mistakes. And I think we haven't done terribly there and we've gotten a lot better at it too, but there are definitely some early on um, things. And another way of thinking about it that I've found useful sometimes in my, for myself, and especially when you're thinking about very early employees or people in leadership positions that you're hiring after, if you're a first-time CEO, it means that you thought to yourself at some point, I'm not qualified for this job, but I can do it. And if you have funding, it means that you've convinced other people of it. And if you have employees, skilled employees that are working for you, it means you've also convinced them of that, mm-hmm. right? New ventures don't work unless you can do, unless you can have faith that you can do something you've never done before. Mm-hmm. Um, but so then you say, well, okay, I believe that about myself. I convinced other people about that, about myself. And then you come up, you know, somebody comes and says, man, I really want to join your, your company and I have all this great experience. And, you know, you're kind of thinking to yourself, yeah, you have relevant experience. You sound very enthusiastic and very interested, but you don't really fit the profile of what I need. You haven't done this before exactly. You haven't led something that looks like what I want this to look like. Um, you know, whether it be in marketing or in product or wherever. Um, and, and so it's, you have to have that faith in yourself, but because you're new at it, you have to hire people. You can't give people under you the, the, um, same kind of benefit of the doubt, Like you have to hire people who have been there and done that because you haven't. And so it's, it's the blind leading the blind, like you need checks of people who know what successful scaling feels like, who knows what it feels like when you have product market fit, who know what, you know, have the right connection to something. Um, so I'm not saying never take a leap with somebody, and especially with entry-level people, if you have somebody who has the combination of the smart, the hard work, and the excitement, um, by all means, take some bets on them. And even with other people, you can take certain kinds of bets. But you really need to surround yourself with, with people who are much better fit for their current job than you are as a first-time CEO. <laughs> yeah, that's great advice. That's so true. So, so true. It's uh, surrounding yourself with amazing people. Um, so your, your, is your dog's name Harley? She is named Harley. Okay. So, um, so, so what, what's, uh, what kind of dog is Harley? Uh, so she is, we rescued her at a Texas shelter where she had come in with Parvo. And uh, they said that they thought she was going to be 35 to 40 pounds. She's 85 pounds. Wow. Um, but she was eight when we got her. Uh, and um, so we found out she's half staffing, so like kind of a pit bull kind. And you can see the bit in her face, but, um, but that's mostly all. And, uh, and then she's a quarter golden retriever. So um, she looks nothing like a golden retriever, but she has a lot of the personality. Um, and, uh, but her grandma was a golden retriever. And, uh, and then she's uh, eight each of Australian cattle dog and great curious. Very cool. Well, if uh, someone is interested in getting their dog tested, uh, what's the best way to do that? 
Well, you can go to our website at embarkvet.com. That's E-M-B-A-R-K-V-E-T.com. Uh, you can order there and you can also find it on Amazon. Awesome. Yeah, it's uh, it, it was it was a fun process and obviously the results were really cool just to check out and um, highly, highly recommend it. And uh, I was you know, very happy to see that, you know, Stella got the, the check off of, of good health. So uh, she's good. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> and uh, I will say with the diner dogs, we actually see far more so than with purebred dogs where designer dogs are not exactly what they say they are. So it's, mm-hmm. it's about 15% of the designer dogs that are tested with us are not what they were initially claimed to be, or at least not entirely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's pretty crazy. Yeah, and that's you know the fear of the homo. I mean the uh, the dog owner was uh, you know is she fifty fifty? And she was. So it was like oh we had a good breeder that you know sold us a dog that is uh, exactly what they they were um, a- advertised. But um, well, Ryan, thanks so much for walking us through your professional history, all the great research that you did to lead you to the point of starting this great company with your brother. And uh, now that you've raised capital, it's uh, you know, time to take over the world. So uh, good luck with your business. Thanks for sharing the story and lots of great advice. Yep, thank you. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.